0: Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.
1: Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're gonna to take a look at populism. What exactly is it? Where is it occurring or in the United States and around the world? I guess today is an expert on this topic. Mr. Eric Protzer, a research fellow at Harvard's Growth Lab, recently co-authored an interesting and timely book titled, Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back Disenchanted Voters. Eric Protzer, welcome to today's Global Connections Program.
2: Thanks so much, Bill. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: I appreciate you being with me. We're going to get into your very interesting book. And just a moment, but just very briefly, what is the mission of the Harvard's Growth Lab? What exactly does it do?
2: Fantastic. So the Harvard Growth Lab is sort of a think tank that's housed within the uh, Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. And it works with different governments around the world to figure out What are some of the most uh, serious constraints to economic growth in a particular place? And how can you address those particular constraints to build an economy that is more resilient, that grows faster, that's more sustainable? Uh, You know, all that all that good stuff, figuring out place specific issues that hold back a better economy for all the citizens that are there.
1: That's a very important topic. We Maybe we can factor in some of that information today or come <laughs> back later and do a whole absolutely. program on it. But today we're going to be talking about populism. How did you decide to team up with the Professor Somerville and write this book on populism, how economic fairness can win back disenchanted voters?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my co-author, Paul Somerville, and I, we've known each other and done various things together for about 10 years. And I uh, About three years ago, we were having conversations about the rise of populism around the world, seen in things like, you know, Trump and Brexit. In France, you might think of the Giajeune and Marine Le Pen. Uh, And we were concerned that the response from the political mainstream, you know, both on the left and on the right, but the political mainstream overall uh, was in many cases ineffective. You had, uh, you know, the win for uh, Trump in the United States. You had the upheaval of uh, Brexit in the United Kingdom. Uh, Even recently, you know, Joe Biden's victory was relatively with uh, small margins. And there's the risk of, of a lot of people say Trump coming back in 2024. So this is this book is about taking a more serious look at the economic causes of populism. And in particular, we say that it's not about economic inequality. It's about economic unfairness. It's that people feel they're unfairly held back from success. And that requires very different policy prescriptions that we go into in a lot of detail in the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get into the factors involved in this and some of the reasons and motivators, but I'm just curious, how, how do you define populism? I've heard it seems like if you're around three people, you get four different definitions yeah. of populism. How do you define populism?
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point because uh, there isn't a consensus on what populism is in the academic literature. But that being said, uh, there are two features that seem really persistent that we use in the book. One is anti elitism. So it's the sense that, you know, there are these corrupt elites that are purportedly rigging the system, making things hard for regular people. Uh, You can think of things like the global financial crisis, for example, where it was seen that, you know, these financiers crashed the economy, um, creating a bunch of trouble for most regular people. And and meanwhile, they got off relatively stock free. So that's one element, the anti elitism. And the, the second element is anti pluralism. Which is the sense that you know there's a one true people and only they have legitimate political authority, and every for everybody else, it's just lock her up.
1: That's a very interesting definition. I, certainly covers the waterfront. I'm just curious. So it seems like that all of the parties involved, for example, if we if we take folks who feel disenfranchised or they're disenchanted with the the political elite or whatever the case might be or as you mentioned with the economic community especially with the bankers who created the collapse in 2008 and apparently not one of them has been held accountable or held responsible for it but it seems like every camp would say uh, if you're well let's just say you mentioned Donald Trump a minute ago if you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump each camp would say that they're populist for reasons that you mentioned is is that correct
2: yeah yeah, I mean that's the general sense. Uh, it's It's interesting because there are populists both on the left and and on the right. You know, in the us, for example, you might argue that Bernie Sanders is a little bit populist, and a lot of the stuff that he goes on about is similar. It's this you know rigged system that uh, you have these elites that are just making things hard for regular people. so that that's that's right. It, it tends to be that you know sense of things being rigged against the the true people.
1: Exactly. Well, let's talk about some of the reasons. Uh, you mentioned Brexit a minute ago, the uh, Britain exiting the European Union, that type of thing. I'm, I assume that trade agreements like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or the TPP, the Trans Pacific Partnership, different ones like that would be folded into this, along with this whole discussion of globalization. How, how do, Well, let's just start from that angle. We'll start at the macro level. How do those come together to create this scenario or to create this situation where people believe that the situation is or the conditions are rigged?
2: Yeah, so the, the foundational thing, and we show this with statistics in the book, is that when you have a situation where the economy is unfair and the hallmark of that is low social mobility. It's when, you know, your success as an individual really depends on your family background. That is the hallmark of when a place is susceptible to populism. And the way that these macroeconomic things play into it is that if you have a country or a region that has an unfair economy where people can't get ahead on their own merits, then, uh, you know, in one case that can apply if you have an unlucky start in life, but also if you're knocked down by an economic shock. So a lot of places with low social mobility, unfair economies, when they uh, opened up to globalization in all these ways, they didn't necessarily prepare their citizens uh, to, to take on those shocks and have a, a fair response to it. And the consequences is being you know discussed uh, quite a bit in the economic literature on this is that a lot of people lost their jobs and uh, a lot of people felt it was really unfair. Um, there was a really interesting finding showing that uh, in the US versus Canada, what happens when you have the Chinese import competition, you know, all the trade with China leading to job losses. The evidence actually was that the shock was more severe in Canada, but that more people got their job back or some sort of job back after the shock. And it's that kind of, Uh, that kind of economic socioeconomic infrastructure that supports economic opportunity that leads to resilience against, uh, you know, global shocks and leads to resilience against populism because otherwise you can lose your job uh, and you might not have a path to recovery because the economy is not fair. And that, that can be a really serious
1: problem. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about low social mobility and Mm -hmm. it does, as as someone standing from the outside looking in, I, i feel like we have lost a lot of the social mobility it seems like years ago if you were working at any job you you captured the american dream if you yeah. want to move up you can do it you can do it in this country uh, various things have happened <clears throat> excuse me over the way uh, during the last several years we've well we've seen a, a uh, diminution of labor unions, that was one way of moving up uh, so, being socially mobile. Another way is to move from one job to another. Do we they're perceived in their actual conditions. Are we actually in a condition of lower social mobility as opposed to perceived lower social mobility?
2: Yeah, the, the answer to that is yes. So something that is not actually very well known, is that the U.S. has some of the worst social mobility of any high-income country, and it's been getting worse over the last several decades. There's uh, good evidence, for example, that um, the, the factors that account for a person's individual economic success, family wealth has become a more strong determinant of your individual economic success over the last couple of decades. It, it used to be that, uh, you know, um, it, it was more merit-based, that if you got ahead and you had a higher outcome than somebody else, uh, it tended to be that you would earn it. You know, you'd get that ahead through your talent and effort. But these days, uh, it, it is more often a result of family wealth. And at the same time, you can look at people who lose out and whether that's, uh, you know, a fair consequence of their own choices or whether it's uh, something that's seen as unfair because, uh, you know, maybe there was a shock from globalization or global financial crisis, or there wasn't the right, you know, support in place for people to navigate that and get new opportunities. So, uh, yes, social mobility is is not doing so well in the U.S.
1: What recommendations would you make to the private sector and to the governmental agencies or to Congress or whomever to improve that social mobility, not to yeah. rig the, rig it for somebody else, but to help people who want to get ahead or want to climb that social ladder, what, what could we do differently?
2: Yeah, so the entire last half of the book is basically dedicated to answering that question, both for the US but also for places like the UK and France and Italy. Uh, and we, we have this method that we actually use at the Harvard Growth Lab. that's called the Diagnostic Method. And it lets you figure out, well, what are the place-specific constraints to better economic outcomes and we develop an entire framework for that for social mobility. And the two things that I would really emphasize are that high social mobility rests on both equal opportunity and fair unequal outcomes. It's really important to get both of those things right. You need, to, you know, people should be able to get an education, afford their healthcare, uh get to a place where they can compete for a job or to start a business but then also be able to translate that opportunity to success in a competitive market. All of those ingredients are essential. Now, uh, in general, the United States uh, tends to do less well on the inputs to equal opportunity than other countries around the world. But that being said, uh, as I emphasized previously, the leading constraints are often very place specific. So what I would say is that uh, you know state governments and even regional governments have got to really get down to brass tacks and figure out uh, what are those leading problems because it, it could be that folks can't afford uh, to get you know vocational training. It could be that they can't afford uh, their health care. They go into medical bankruptcy, uh, and it can even be the industrial mix that's in a particular place. You know, there might not be the right uh, job opportunities in place, and it could be that too many jobs have gone abroad and not enough uh, left behind. So it's a combination. Of all of those things. But the answer, uh, as as emphasized, is it's got to re- really be very place-specific.
1: It, it sounds like we're, we're, the, we're using the old statement of we're really leveling the playing field is what we're trying to do. So yes. that everybody has a chance and you want to remove the barriers that may impede somebody or at least reduce them to some degree. Uh, one thing that always comes up, we talk about globalization and international agreements we're living in an interdependent world and that's not going to change we see businesses go overseas they a lot of the businesses go overseas because of the low wages they often go to other countries and have a race to the bottom to see who can pay the lowest wage and then if the wages gets too high they move to another uh, in, well economically developing country what can be done about that can we factor those factor that into trade agreements and try to reduce that Uh, possibility?
2: Well, one thing I would say is that I think it's maybe less about the trade agreements themselves than the, uh, you know, the policies that a government does to support an environment of high social mobility and economic fairness, where it is possible to pursue new opportunities. It's uh, like I mentioned earlier, where, you know, in Canada, after all the, the trade with China the people who lost their job, about 60% of them got new jobs because there are new things in place. Like you can get skills retraining. Uh, you have to maybe worry less about your healthcare costs. Uh, in some instances, the industrial mix in a particular place is better. Uh, those kinds of things all support uh, being able to climb that economic ladder better. Um, so in, in the case of, uh, of the US, uh, again, it's about investing in, in leveling the play field, playing field and creating equal opportunity. I'm, I'm not so sure it requires totally jettisoning, uh, you know, international trade or reworking trade agreements per se. It's, it's more about that, you know, policy to support a level playing field and equal opportunity.
1: It would be very difficult, if not impossible, <laughs> to eliminate international trade, but we can still try to make it fair and, and bring it to as many people as possible. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our programs, and you'd like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at that broad concept of populism to try to focus upon it and to learn more about it. I guess today is an expert on this topic. Mr. Eric Protzer, a research fellow at Harvard's Growth Lab, recently co-authored an interesting and timely book titled Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back disenchanted voters. Eric, this, this whole issue of populism is just absolutely fascinating, and there are so many parts of it that we could talk about. One that comes to mind, I think, often, and you, you alluded to it, I think, a few moments ago, is income inequality. What role does income inequality play? I, I got the impression it's not as powerful of a role as social mobility, but mm-hmm. what role does that play? Because we have a huge problem with income inequality in the United States. It it used to be it was Latin America. You look down to some of the South American countries and say, well, those folks should do better. Now we're looking at the United States and saying this is one of the most unequal income countries in the world.
2: Right. So one of the major things we try to do in the book is to dispel this sort of common misperception that income inequality is basically the same thing as economic injustice, because the problem with that is that some people are successful for good reasons. And that's a really important reason why we find that, uh, you know, in fact, income inequality and wealth inequality, they're not associated, they're not good statistical predictors of where populism occurs. Uh, and instead, it's really important to think about social mobility. Uh, you know, For example, you can think of places like uh, France, where there is a very strongly interventionist state, a lot of redistribution compared to other high-income countries, uh, income and wealth inequality are somewhat low, actually, and yet they have these huge populist uh, movements. Uh, you know, as seen in Eric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen, uh, people like that, also the Gilead. Uh, and uh, one thing that stands out is that France has uh, quite poor social mobility. People find that you know, no matter whether people get unequal outcomes. The question is not how high or high, how low, you know, how unequal is it? It's do people get the outcomes they deserve? Can people get ahead on their own merits? Those are the really important questions to ask.
1: Those are extremely, extremely important. They certainly are. The, the situation too, in the United States, we have so many people who want to use this term populist and we have news outlets too that put this out and make it sound like they are actually populist. And, Uh, The ones that come to mind are Fox, One American News, Newsmax, who uh, I'm not sure who would would think they're really populist oriented. But how do you deal with that when you have people who are just disseminating false information come right down to it and talking about how their 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 particular policies, their particular ideas are populist in nature?
2: So the first thing that I would say about that is that it's important to recognize that, you know, all this kind of media disinformation, you see it on social media, too. Uh, When you're thinking about that as a cause of populism, you can think of it basically as an accelerating factor. Uh, I I mean, you know, there are plenty of places around the world that have weird news stations or lots of social media use, lots of people on on Twitter. Uh, But really, the decisive thing is the economic unfairness. But that being said, of course, it it doesn't make it any better if, when you have a situation where people think the system is rigged, you also have uh, misinformation out there, uh, conspiracy theories, and 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 all that. Um, Now, I'm I'm going to be honest. The book doesn't go into a great amount of detail about how to deal with the media specifically because our focus is is on the economy. Uh, The one thing that I would say is that um, you know it's it's important to start asking questions about this. There's a lot of uh, really good Ah, uh, inquiry right now. Public discussion about what's the you know appropriate role of media and social media in people's lives and the information they receive. And you know, is there a a way to uh, arrange things so that people you know maybe at least have a sense that what they're seeing is is maybe not accurate? Uh, so that those are those are very important questions to ask. That's for sure.
1: And of course, there are a lot of groups that are very concerned about low social mobility or social mobility in general, income inequality. And I often think one one organization the United Nations, uh, the United Mm -hmm. Nations International Monetary Fund, the United Nations International Labor Organization,
0: Mm -hmm. they they have
1: Mm -hmm. programs to try to help overcome some of these obstacles and to level that playing field. Did you use any of their information or did you tie into some of the activities that they had underway when you were writing your book?
2: Well, they actually, the United Nations and the IMF uh, cited the research behind the book in some of their official documents. So there's been a little bit of, uh, I mean, just a little bit of, of um, connection there. Uh, generally, I would say, though, that uh, the, I think the main role for these kinds of international organizations is uh, basically to develop the, the awareness and the, uh, you know, the thought about the policy inputs that do support higher social mobility. Uh, I mean, you know, the IMF, for example, it maybe has a more interventionist role in countries with distressed macroeconomic situations. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure it plays such a, you know, decisive role in deciding, you know, government policy and say, you know, the, the UK or the US or Canada uh, feeding into social mobility. So, so I would say the main role is, is really about bringing up the policy discussion. Because uh, there there is a huge focus on income inequality, but maybe less on social mobility. And that, that needs to be brought up.
1: Right. And that's what you were describing is exactly what the International Labor Organization does. It's a tripartite organization that deals with governments. And it also brings businesses and labor into the mm-hmm. equation and into the discussion and laying out the policies. Well, we're down to our last two or three minutes. And we've talked about it to a large degree. But what are... Uh, as far as your closing comments, what are some of the things that we can do to, quote, unrig the system so that we do have a level playing or more level playing field and the people do have access to improving their social mobility?
2: Yeah, well, in the in the U.S., I would say in general, the most important things are trying to make uh, you know healthcare more accessible and affordable to people. Medical bankruptcy is the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the U.S., and that c- can completely derail somebody's future. Uh, on top of that, I'd say trying to make education, especially vocational education, uh, more affordable, so that folks who are losing factory jobs because of you know low wage competition. They can upgrade their skills. It doesn't mean you become like a coder or something. It just means you get better at what you do. Uh, And thinking about the industrial mix of activities that happen in different states and different parts of the U.S. and uh, how government can support that so that there's a wider range of options and know-how out there.
1: Those are excellent ideas and you, you sound it sounds like you have a great body of literature on how to do this. How are you getting this information out to the public, to other universities, to the media, to business entities, labor unions, uh, folks who are just interested in populism in general and, and improving their own lot in life?
2: Yeah, well we we uh, I mean the best thing you can do is is read the book. But uh, I we have been doing a couple of events uh I was speaking in Paris with Thomas Piketty a few weeks ago at, at Oxford, at uh, you know different think tanks, and we have some more scheduled in, in, the, in the new year. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, there will be a whole slew of events. Just try to follow uh, you know Reclaiming Populism, or you can even follow me on on Twitter or LinkedIn and uh, see as, as those things come up.
1: And of course, people can take our taping today with you and put it in universities, they can put it they can play it at service clubs, Rotary Club meetings, Kiwanis, Optimists, wherever they'd like to do it. The program is free. And we need to get this information out because it is an important topic. And it is one that affects not, a, not literally tens of millions, but billions of people around the world. And we do need to learn much more about it and to see if we can improve the situation because a lot of people do. Have erroneous attitudes about what's actually happening to them and many other people have the correct attitude about what's happening to them and we need to help them to determine that but eric protzer i want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program
2: thanks so much bill i really appreciate you bringing
1: me on here okay thank you i'm bill miller thanks for joining us today on global connections television
0: global connections television is a privately funded independently produced program the opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.